Well, we're excited for you to be here. I'm supposed to dismiss the kids. Did they already get dismissed? All right, excellent. All right. All right, they're switching up the order of service on me, right? I got to keep track of all that. So, and they do not want to stay in here either, right? They want to be out there having fun, learning about God uh, in their class. All right, let me make sure that I don't have one other thing. Oh yeah, one more thing we got to do. So if if uh, if you're new to, new to the church, we have there's an app called YouVersion. If you have a uh, a smartphone and you can get on there, create an account, and uh, and then we do for our service every week is a live event, which means that the notes for the sermon are in embedded so it populates all your verses. You can scroll down and track with all the points. If you don't know how to do any of that, then you need to see somebody in this section at the end of the service, right? And, uh, and, and, and they will show you how to log on and take care of that. Well, the other thing that we do is we do the podcast every week for all three of our campuses. So Suffolk, uh, now Newport News. How about that? Right now, so there's a church service in Suffolk tonight. Come on, for the first time. So good. So, so the podcast for every campus is on our website, and then also we put a, a document on there, a PDF document, because we tend to cover a lot of ground. If you're a note taker, sometimes we frustrate you because we might move at a pace that's quicker than you can write it down. Uh, every week, you can go on and find all the notes from the sermon will be on there, so in case you want to do some additional study. So this series that we are launching tonight, we're, we're launching this series here and in Williamsburg. Suffolk is doing a little bit different of a series since they're starting as a, as a camp. But Jamie and I, Pastor Jamie and I, are are launching this series called Good News. This is going to be the longest series that we have done in the history of the City Life Church. So we're going to be in this series probably for a good solid three months because there's a lot to talk about when you begin to pick up the idea of the good news of Scripture, especially the good news of Jesus Christ. So, all right, how many how many of you have ever had someone come to you and say, "I've got good news"? And bad news, what do you want first? Anybody? Anybody ever had you say that? All right. Now, who are the people in here who want the good news first? Anybody want the good news first? I knew Marvin's hand was going to come up because he's one of the most positive people I know. He's like, give me the good news, right? So, right, how many people, the bad news, right? You want the bad news first? Yeah, it, it's a lot of bad news hands that are they're going up. Steve or Jerry was telling me about an article that he read in, in Psychology Today. They, they actually did some research on this, and, and they found that the vast majority of people in America, they, they want the bad news first. There's something in us that's drawn to negativity. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find that it's easier. I have to work harder to be positive, right, on a day than it is. That negativity just seems to come easy for us. But I know for me, one of the reasons why I want the bad news first when someone says to me, I've got good news and bad news, because I want to end on a good note. I want to get the bad news out of the way. Anybody else like that? You get the bad news out of the way and give me the good news so I can move forward with something positive. So I've got for you tonight some good news and some bad news. And I'm going to give you the bad news first. Sorry, Marvin. So, so this, is, this, is the, this is the bad news. This is the bad news. You and I are going to suffer some in this life. We are, right? It's not, it's not the greatest news to hear. So this is my good news. This is my good news. You and I are going to suffer some in this life. So Father, as we launch into this series tonight, I pray that you would help us get a hold of this revelation, not just in our head, but in our hearts, that there are times that you lead us into places that we would never choose to go. There are times that we find ourselves in circumstances because of what other people do to us, 
that might cause us to say, God, have you forgotten me? And it's oftentimes, God, in those moments that you want to say to us, this is one of the best things that has ever happened to you. Help us to see tonight the good news of the suffering that we have at your hand in this life. Come on, in Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Everybody says, I don't want to say amen to that. Come on, give me something else, right? Give me something else to say amen to. All right, let me scoot on through here. All right, so, so this idea of good news, this, this idea of good news, it doesn't start in the New Testament, right? A, a lot of us, I think, sometimes think that the good news picks up with the, with the Gospels, with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But this, this idea, this concept of good news, it starts way back in the Old Testament. Let me just give you a couple of examples, a couple of examples. Here in Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings what? Good news, the good news of peace, the good news of salvation, the news that the God of Israel reigns. That last statement means that the one true God is in control of the entire universe. It means that there's nothing beyond his ability. Packed in that one little statement there, in the end, it's talking about God being all-knowing. It's talking about God being all-powerful. It's talking about God being ever-present. And that's good news for us, especially when we find ourselves walking through difficult times. Look at this verse in Isaiah 61, 1. This is the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. I think Isaiah had a sense that this was for him, that he was called to be a prophet, a, a voice for God in his nation. But we know from knowing the end of the story, that this wasn't just about a calling on Isaiah's life, that this was a prophecy of the coming of Christ. When Jesus stepped into a synagogue early on in his ministry, for one of the first times he taught in a synagogue, which was like a church to Jewish people 2,000 years ago in Israel, they handed him a scroll to read from. And guess what they handed him? They handed him the scroll of Isaiah. Now, that wasn't a coincidence, right? God had been orchestrating that from the beginning of time. And Jesus opens the scroll, and he reads right here from Isaiah 61. And what does he say? He says, the Lord has fulfilled this prophecy on this day that God sent him into the world to be good news for us. And we're going to be pack, unpacking everything that that means for us on this story. So this word gospel, this word gospel, right? How many people you've ever had somebody say it's the gospel truth, right? They're trying to convince you of the truth of what they're saying. They say, hey, it's the gospel truth. Don't you like sometimes people that don't even believe the Bible will borrow its language to try to lend credibility to the lie that they're trying to tell you, yeah? And so, so this word gospel, it originates from an old English word that actually is God's spell, so when they were trying to interpret the Bible that was written in Greek, they needed to find, because we didn't necessarily have all the words that we needed, and so they would make up words to try to communicate the sentiment that was being communicated. So in your Bible, whenever you see gospel, originally it was euangelion, euangelion, and they found this old English two words, God, which means good, and spell, which means news, and they put it together to create this word called God spell. So really old Bibles would have God spell, and eventually that word has matured and evolved over time, and it's now become our word, which is gospel, which means good news. 20 times in the gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's biographical information about Jesus, and those four books together are called the gospels, because it's the 
good news of Jesus Christ. 77 more times we find this word all the way through the book of Revelation. So 97 times the Holy Spirit inspires a writer of the New Testament to use this word euangelion. It's the word that eventually gives us the word evangelism. It's the word that gives us the word evangelist, where it connects the person to bringing the idea of the good news. So let me give you a couple of examples. Acts 20, 24. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news, the euangelion, the gospel, the Godspell about the wonderful grace of God. We're going to be talking about grace in this series. Revelation 14, 6 through 7, I like this one because there's a, there's a word that's given to us before good news here that's important. Verse 6 says, I saw another angel flying through the sky, carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to this world. The eternal good news. To every nation, tribe, and language, and people, fear God, he shouted. Give glory to him, for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. Just in this one verse, we're told that this good news, it's for everybody. It's for everybody. It's not just a message for this person. It's not just a message for that country. It's not just a message for this time in history. It's a message for all people for all time. That's why here the Holy Spirit inspires John in this revelation that he has of heaven. He puts this word eternal good news because the message of the good news of Christ leads us into eternity, but it's also an eternal message, which means that it's never going to change. Yuang Gelion. So you might be here already and you're saying, Fred, so you started talking about suffering. You started talking about how there's good news and bad news and the good news and the bad news is both the same. And then you've kind of shifted gears here and you've, you've talked about the gospel and the good news of the gospel. How in the heck do you want me to come to a place where I'd be willing to say, because some of you, you're suffering right now. I know because I talked to you this week. Some of you would say, Fred, I'm not going to call it good. I refuse to call it good. There's, there's no way that the news that, that, that I found out this week can be good to me. And that's where I'm going to take you tonight. By the end of tonight, I hope that I'm going to convince you that it is. So I grew up, I'm turning 49 in March, so I'm getting a little bit older, getting a little bit older. And, and so I grew up and, and as a child in the 70s, right? Anybody else here grew up a child in the 70s? Now, I was little in the 70s, right? Some of you were, were, were uh, uh, well, we won't, we won't say it when we'll go there, right? You were doing some bad things in the 70s, and you know it's true. All right. So, so I grew up as a child in the 70s, and I grew up in an Episcopal church. Uh, uh, it was a, a mainline denominational church. A couple of my keepsakes, you know, my father passed away a year ago this past November. I've showed you this before. This is his common book of prayer. It's one of my cherished possessions. This was the cross that he wore. He was a, a lay reader. And in the Episcopal church, I don't know if they still do it today, but there's a processional that comes in where you stand, and, uh, and then there's a processional that comes in where all the members of the choir, the, the rector, the uh, the lay readers, and, and the processional is led by this cross. And as the cross gets to your, your aisle, you bow in reverence to the cross. And they had on their robes, and, and my dad was always a part of that. And even though I didn't make a vow of devotion to Christ until I was 23, I, I've always had this sense of a, ri- a sense of a rich spiritual heritage. 
And it was in the 70s that there was this incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit across all mainline denominational churches, right? Methodist and Baptist and Presbyterian and Lutheran, the Episcopal, the, the list just goes on and on. And what began to happen is that these families, these people that were experiencing the Holy Spirit in their churches, they didn't want to leave their churches, which I love that right now. A lot of them got chased out of the church, but they didn't want to leave. And But what they began to do is they began to gather together for having these little Bible studies to try to understand what is happening to us. They began to experience what the Bible talks about in Acts. We're going to go there in our series. And, and I found myself as a child going to all of these Bible studies at all of these people's houses. My parents just, they couldn't get enough of community with other people who were experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. And one of the houses that we went to was the house of Herb Whitlow. He and his wife, Gray, Herb and Gray Whitlow, I loved going to their house because he had the most amazing workshop, right? Even as a little boy, there was something inside of me that says, I want tools like this one, one day. You would go into his garage and he had every kind of woodworking tool that you could imagine. And, and, and in his garage, he had all of these things that he had hand carved. He was an amazing artist and his house was full of all of these things that he had made by hand, all of the hours that he had spent in his workshop. His workshop was interesting because all the counters were really low. His workshop was interesting because all the tools were accessible, right, to a small child, which I like that even, even more. His workshop looked like that because Herb Whitlow lived his adult life in a wheelchair. And then one of the things I always remember about Mr. Whitlow is that he was always smiling, always had an encouraging word for people. It, it was as though his expression and his countenance did not match his circumstance. Powerful, isn't it? And the thing that caused Mr. Whitlow to be in a wheelchair was that he had contracted polio when he was younger. And polio had left him paralyzed. A vaccine was introduced to prevent this terrible disease, right, in 1955. How many people here right now, right now, not someone you knew, but have a friend right now that's in a wheelchair because of polio? Anybody? Yeah, one hand, just one hand. The reason for that is, is because a vaccine exists that you were given, that I was given, that enables us to build a resistance against this terrible disease that took so many lives, left so many people in a, in a debilitated state. Immunization is the process where a person is made immune or resistant to an infectious disease, typically by the administration of a vaccine. Now let me Tell you what, these, this, many of you are familiar, but we're laying a foundation for where we're going. Vaccines are a way to stimulate the body's own immune system to protect a person against subsequent infection or disease by introducing safe levels. Can you imagine when this idea first came out, right? And they're doing human trials. So tell me again what you're going to do. You're going to actually infect me with the very disease that you want to protect me from, right? That's the point where I go, I don't think I want to be a part of these trials anymore, Right? Now, for this, it's commonplace for us, but at some point, this was a brand new idea. 
a brand new idea was that, that your body has an immune system. God created you with an immune system, but sometimes that immune system is inadequate to resist against things that you come in contact with. So they said, hey, I think that if we introduce safe amounts of the disease to someone's immune system, low enough to where it will not cause them to be infected by it, but it will, it will spur their immune system into action to build its own resistance so when it, they come in contact... The world is not rid of polio. You with me? Your immune system has been made ready to fight against it. And we can say that against many diseases. You and I come against all of these diseases that you read about in history all the time. But the reason why you don't contract it is because something in you has prepared to say no. So my first job out of college, my first real job, I was a bartender out of college, which my parents were so excited about that. But my first real job out of college was working at the Christian Children's Fund, which is now called Child's Fund. They were uh, originally an evangelical organization. They've become a a humanitarian organization, still doing great work throughout the world. I worked there for five years. And uh, one of the things that I was struck by when I worked at the Christian Children's Fund was the reality of how many children die every year from preventable disease. Right? I think we understand that, that, that children are going to die in desperate circumstances because of the situations that they're in, but it's something else when they die and they don't have to. Right? Every child's death is tragedy, but when they die when they don't have to, this is estimates by the World Health Organization that 18.7 million infants worldwide are still not being reached by routine immunization services. And about 1.5 million of those children die every year from preventable disease. That's why we're excited about what Marvin's doing in Haiti and why we want to be a part of that work and building bridges there because it gives these communities and these children during the floods and the rainy seasons that it enables them to still be able to get to the clinic so they can get the medicine that they need so they don't have to die. It's why we're doing the work that we're doing with Food for the Hungry. Food for the Hungry down in the Dominican Republic. This is, we're doing it for lots of reasons, but this is one of them. It's because we want children to have access to the medicine that they should have access to so their life is not cut short unnecessarily. Terrible tragedy. So let me introduce you to a new phrase tonight. This phrase is going to become commonplace here in our church. The virology of our humanity. See, I believe that God has put something in us and our physical bodies to help us understand our spirituality. I believe all of this conversation that we've been having about immunization and vaccination, that God made that a part of the human experience and a part of the human story so that we could better understand the bigger story that he's trying to write, the story that's supposed to lead us into heaven for all eternity. Revelation 12, 7 through 9. We, we, we read in Scripture about this person, Lucifer, and I'm not going to work through all of these Scriptures together, but I'm putting them up there, and they're, again, they're going to be online if you want to read them for yourself to, so you can make sure that I'm not making it up. Come on. Revelation 12, 7 through 9. It talks about a rebellion that happened one day in heaven, right? That there was an angel in heaven that said, you know what? 
I think that I could do a better job of being in charge of the universe than the sovereign God. And so we are told about his rebellion. Luke 10, 18, Jesus himself says that he saw Lucifer fall from heaven. That's an important one for us. We're going to get to that in this series, the preexistence of Christ. I like to say all the time, if I'm going to trust someone to tell me how to get to heaven, I want it to be someone who's been there before. Every other person that's been born into this world, every other religious leader, their life started just like your life did, not Jesus. He started in heaven before he came to earth. The preexistence of Christ is important to us. Luke 10, 18 talks about the preexistence of Christ. He saw Lucifer fall. Now, Ezekiel 28, 14 and Isaiah 14, 12 through 14 are important because Ezekiel alludes to the fact, and I believe, that, that Lucifer was part of the worship of heaven. Now, we don't know whether or not he was an archangel like, like, uh, like Gabriel was and, and Michael. Some people believe that. We don't know. But, but Ezekiel seems to imply that he had a unique role. Ezekiel seems to imply that there was something special about what he did. And then Isaiah talks specifically about his pride was his downfall. Now, when you put all four of these together, if you're of the camp that he was involved in the worship, you could see how the story might have played out, right? Is that here is Lucifer in the heavens. He's a part of the worship. And when you read in the book of Revelation, worship is such a huge part of the heaven experience because the glory of God is so incredibly awe-inspiring that it draws a song of praise out of you. So there's Lucifer. He's in heaven. He's thinking, I wouldn't mind a little bit of that praise. And then at some point, he makes the decision, in fact, I want all of that praise. Now, there's some verses we don't know for sure, but some people believe that there are certain verses that allude to the fact that he took a third of all the angels with him. Can you imagine that he was able to convince a third of the angels of heaven to join in his rebellion. Now, Luke 10, 18, we know that they failed, that they were cast out of heaven. But every time I do this study, every time I read about these verses, I ask myself the same question all the time. How did that happen? We're going to get into Adam and Eve in the garden and how that ties into everything that we're talking about tonight in this series, right? we got a few months that we're going to unpack, I'm telling you, this series, the good news. But one of the things that leaves me asking the question, Adam and Eve, they were in a perfect place, but it still was not heaven. Are you tracking with me? It still wasn't heaven. But Lucifer, he was there. He was in the place of paradise. How does someone like that risk it all? And how did he convince a third of all the other angels that were there to go down with him, right? I think it's because he lacked a comparative experience. How many people have heard the term affluenza? Anybody here heard of the term affluenza, right? Let me read the definition of affluenza to you, if you're not familiar with that term. Then we're going to talk about how it got introduced recently. Affluenza is defined as the inability to understand the consequences of one's actions because of privilege. Let me read it again. It's defined as the inability to understand the consequences of one's actions because of privilege. Who can fill in the name of the blanks up there? Anybody? Who's in the news right now about affluenza? Ethan Crouch. Anybody read that story? about the young adult that drunk driving uh, several years ago killed multiple people, and he got off with a slap on the wrist. 
You know why he got off with a slap of the wrist? Because somebody showed up at his trial, a medical professional, and says that he should not be held accountable for his actions because he suffers from something called affluenza. That he should, he should not be. He did these things, but he's not responsible for it because his parents have never punished him. His parents have only given him this life. Now, we know that God is a perfect father and that there's no mistake that he made in the heavens. But yet, even still, Lucifer at some point fell prey to the temptation of rebellion. And I think part of the reason why is because he never had known what it was like to suffer. See, I believe that we're not ready for glory, the glory of heaven, until we have endured this life, because after we have suffered here, we will never want anything else but the glory that awaits us there. You and I are desperate for a rebellion immunization. See, I think, I think that after Lucifer and however many angels that fell with him, we know it was a lot, even if it wasn't a third. It was a lot, right? That, that, that God in heaven said, we, we're going to make a new kind of being. We're going to create a new kind of being that once they get here, that they're only going to want to be here because they've experienced something less than what we offer them here. We're going to give them a comparative experience. And, and, and their beginning of their existence, the beginning of their existence, they're going to suffer. And it's going to be good news for them. Because as they suffer, they're going to build up a resistance to rebellion. Because any time that temptation might enter their heart, just like it did Lucifer's heart before this world existed, we're going to go, oh, oh, I've been there, and I'm not going back. There's going to be something inside of who we are, the eternal part of who we are, that when we're in the heavens, that there's going to be a vaccination of suffering that we've been exposed to. I think God teaches us through this natural world. And one of the ways that he teaches us about eternity is through your own natural immune system because I think the eternal part of who you are has an immune system, something that's supposed to be immune to sin. Now, not everybody agrees that sin is possible in heaven. And I think theologians are going to argue about that until we get there and God tells us what the answer is. I'm of the camp that believes that, that it's possible because it was possible for Lucifer. And one of the reasons I believe that, 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 that temptation is so possible because God, he doesn't want robots when we get there. He wants us to have a choice. When we, when we get to heaven, he doesn't want us to kind of pass through some type of process that, that removes us from our will because then what kind of worship is that, right? What, what kind of worship would it be if, if, if we're not given any other choice? But you and I are only going to want to choose to worship him for all eternity because we've tasted of what it's been like to be here. You and I are only going to want to obey him because we've experienced what it's like to be separated from him. You and I are only going to want to serve his purpose because we've experienced the depravity and the suffering of what it feels like to serve ourselves. And we're going to get there and we're going to be ready because we were here first. Let me share some verses with you. 
I want to change the way that you think about suffering. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. One of the reasons we can be thankful in all circumstances is because when we're suffering, we understand that it's purposeful in our lives. We're, we can be thankful because in that moment, we know that God is building up our resistance to get us ready for our eternity. Watch how these next verses connect the idea of suffering specifically to heaven. James 1, 2 through 4, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Why? Because it's good news. All right, what does it say? He doesn't say, well, it, it, it'll pass. No, no, no. He says, consider it an opportunity for great joy. I don't, I don't do great with that. Anybody else do great with that? I'm so excited. I'm suffering today. But that's what it says. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance... Your resistance, come on, has a chance to grow. So let it grow, James says. Let it grow. Now listen to what he says. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete and needing nothing. What? He's not talking about character. We know that's not true. Because we always need to grow more in our character. How could he say that through enduring difficult times, we're made perfect, needing nothing, I think, because the Holy Spirit knew that at some point we were going to come to this revelation about a rebellion immunization and the vaccination of suffering. And that we're made perfect and complete in the sense that we are ready when we've endured enough suffering to step into eternity because that's the only thing that we're ever going to want once we get there. Oh, I got more. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Now, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, right, it's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's one of Jesus' most famous sermons. It begins with what's called the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are. And then there's a list of, of, of character traits. It's one of the five great growth lists. We're going to be going there in our sermon series. One of the five great growth lists. We were going to cover this last week and before we got snowed out, but I'm going to figure out a way to roll it into this series. But it talks about virtues, and then each one of the virtues is accompanied by a promise, right? So look at the one that talks about suffering and being persecuted. It's specifically connected to the promise of heaven. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs, right? This idea of heaven and eternity connected directly to suffering. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and, and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad. I've got explanation points in my Bible right there. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Why is Jesus talking about this? He's saying because, hey, before you get there, you've got to be, be, be made ready for the glory that's waiting for you. And the way that you're made ready for the glory that's awaiting for you is to suffer some while you're here. So that there can be a rebellion resistance that begins to build up inside of us. 
Now, this is a little bit longer of a stretch, but I want to cover all of it for a couple of reasons. One is that it talks again specifically about this idea of suffering to heaven. But then Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, puts a a little caveat in here that's important to us because some of you right now even might be thinking, well, then the more I sin, the better off I'm going to be because then the more I'm going to suffer, the more I'm going to be ready. This verse is for you. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you're going through. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. As if something strange were happening to you instead, right? Be very glad. What's all this talk about being glad about suffering? Because it's good news. For these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it's revealed to all the world. If you're insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed. For the glorious Spirit of God rests upon you. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, for stealing, for making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed the good news? And also, if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to the godless sinner? We're going to talk about that in just a couple of minutes. So if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, oh, that is important, because there's some suffering that is not pleasing to him. If you're suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you and will never fail you. It changes the way you read these verses, doesn't it? It changes the way that we understand what some of these texts were intended to mean. And I love how God anticipates our depravity. Does he not? He knows that there needs to be some verses in here because then the devil will come in and the temptation will be, well, if that's the case, come on, let's suffer some together. Suffering because of your own foolishness does nothing to build up your resistance. It only whets your appetite for more depravity. And this is what it does. It minimizes the impact that you're supposed to have in the lives of other people because nothing of your life is just for you. So if you fall into this trap of just depraved living, depraved living, not only does it damage you, but it damages the destiny and the purpose that God had for you to tell other people about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many of you here tonight, some of you I know because I talked to you just this week, you're suffering because of the depraved decisions that other people made and you're suffering in innocence. And I know it's hard to call it good. And I know it's hard to feel like it's good. But God is making you ready. See, that's why we started with this idea of the good news out of Isaiah about the sovereign creator of the universe because there's nobody else in this life that's perfect. There's nobody else that we could entrust ourselves to like the way we're talking about entrusting ourselves tonight to put your hands into the, the, the abandon your life into the will of a sovereign God. It's a risk because you have to trust that he always has your best interest at heart. 
God is making us ready for the forever that we were born to live. He's making you ready. I hope that phrase becomes a part of who you are. That when you're having a bad day, when you're suffering, when you're suffering and you don't deserve it, that something inside of you is going to rise up and say, God, I'm going to cry a lot today, but there's going to be a few smiles that are going to get mingled in there because I know that you are making me ready for heaven. And when I get there, when I get there, it's the only place that I'm ever going to want to be because of what I had to walk through there. And I think God knows exactly, exactly when our immune system is ready. And so I think that's why some people, they're only given a few days to live. And then some people, they might have this long life because I think this life, it's about that life. I like to call this life being awake in the womb. And you're not born until you breathe your last and wake up there. And he doesn't want you there until you've been made ready, be made ready for the pain that you're supposed to endure here. Now you might say, well, Fred, how are you going to connect that to Garden of Eden? Because the Garden of Eden, that's a pretty powerful story about, about, about goodness and paradise here on this earth. There's the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil, and there's the, 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 the tree of life. If you've got those questions, then you're in the right place because that's where we're going. Come on. But you've got to have to show up for the next few weeks to get there. All right, I'm going to invite the band to come back up. So I've got good news and bad news. I've got good news and bad news for you. The bad news is this. Some of you came in here tonight and heaven is not waiting for you. Some of you came in here tonight and when you breathe your last breath, heaven is not waiting for you. The good news is that you can change all of that. The good news is that tonight could be the night that you look back on at some point in your future and say, that's the day I took my first spiritual breath. For me, it was in December of 1990 when I was 23 years old and I had spent my whole life running from God. And it was in that moment that I realized that God had a right to rule my life. And there was nothing that I wanted more than to discover the plan that he had for me. Some of you have never stepped into that moment. Some of you came here tonight. You didn't even know that that's what this moment was going to be about for you, but that's why you're here. So let me, let me tell you the story. So, so when I was in college, when I was in college, my, my best friend from high school went to UVA. And he was in the band. And, uh, and, and the band, whenever it was a sports season, they could volunteer to stay to play at the sporting event. For, 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 and he was a part of the band and, and, and played for, and it was during basketball season, right? So there was a basketball, home basketball game over fall break. And, and so uh, my buddy John says, why don't you come up and spend the weekend uh, with me here on campus? And I said, cool, it sounds, it sounds like a good time. So I went out there, and, uh, and so the, we're, we're probably like an hour away from having to head to the, the gymnasium, and I didn't, have, I didn't have a penny, right? And, and, and I like to think that maybe I was a broke college student, but we really weren't broke in college, right? We just spent our money on all the wrong stuff. Can we just be honest about that, right? And so, so we had spent all of our money on riotous living, like the story of the prodigal son. And when it was time to get into the, into, into the basketball game, I, I, I couldn't buy a ticket. So, so a bunch of his friends says, hey, we've got an idea. Why don't you pretend like you're part of the band? 
Because when we get to the gate, the security guard kind of glances over at us and sees that we all have a musical instrument. And so they gave us drumsticks. I was a drummer for a day. Where's Chris? I was a drummer for a day. They said, why don't you take these drumsticks and you get in the middle of the crowd and then just kind of carry them, right? In a way that so he can see them. So I'm like, all right, that sounds fun, right? So sure enough, we're walking on. The security guard's looking around. You know, he's looking right, right? He's looking for, does everybody have an instrument? So we scooted on in, and then they took those drumsticks away from me pretty quick, and I had to go sit somewhere else and wait for the game to be over. Heaven is not going to be like that. You can't sneak in. When you breathe your last, you're not going to stand outside the pearly gates in some crowd and think, if I get in the middle of the crowd with the people that live for Jesus, that, that I can sneak past the gate. Listen to this verse in Matthew chapter 7. Oh, I like this verse. Verse 13. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult. Why is it difficult? Because he's making you ready for glory and only a few ever find it. Not because it's hidden, because some people just choose an easier path. And maybe you're here tonight and you've been choosing an easier path your whole life. And something inside of you right now says, I need to get on a different road. I need to get on a different road. Now there's a lot in the Bible that's difficult to understand. It's one of the reasons why we teach and it's one of the reasons why we preach is that we want, we work hard to bring people to a place of understanding. But there are some things in the Bible that could not be more clear. And the Bible could not be more clear that when you and I die, there's only two places that we can go. Either with God forever in paradise in a place of perfection, or we're going to be eternally separated from Him in a place that the Bible calls hell of eternal suffering. It's not complicated to understand. Those are the only two choices. And the only difference between the people that end up in hell and the people that end up in heaven are the people who chose Jesus Christ. So if you're here tonight, and as you look back into the story of your life, you cannot find a moment like I can find in December of 1990. Some of you right now, you're thinking back to that moment where you made a decision to live your life for Jesus. Some of you, your mind is racing right now. You can't find it. You're scrolling through your memories. You're thinking that one time I was in that church, or this one time that friend reached out to me. But every time you've always said no, tonight you need to say yes. See, my prayer leading up to tonight this is our 10th anniversary as a church but I want this time next year to this to be your one anniversary of being a devoted follower of Christ then on January 30th of 2017 you're going to be able to say I can look back and I can find a moment so I'm going to I'm going to ask you to just bow your head with me just trust me for a minute I'm not going to do anything odd nobody's going to do anything weird okay they might but I can't be responsible for that I'm not going to do anything odd or anything weird just going to invite you to close your eyes. And, and this is important because this creates a moment of privacy for people. We do moments like this in different ways. But tonight I felt like let's, let's create a moment of privacy for people. Because see, some people here, they made a decision for Jesus at some point in their life. 
and they've walked away from it and they've been living a lie. And that's a hard thing to admit. But I'm believing that maybe some people are going to admit that tonight. So let's do this. Has everybody just kind of respected this moment of privacy? If you're here tonight and you can't find a moment in your life where you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, I'm just going to invite you to slip your hand up where you are. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. I'm just going to invite you to slip up your hand. If you can't find a moment in your life, in your story, come on, I see your hand over there, ma'am. You can put that down. Somebody else, come on, I know you're here. Where you can't find a moment in your life where you made a vow of devotion to Christ. I'm just going to invite you to slip your hand up right now. Just slip it up. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Somebody else. Anybody else? How about if you're here tonight and you would say, Fred, I can find the moment in my life where I made a decision to live my life for Jesus, but I can find another moment, and it's a moment that I'm not so proud of. It's the moment where I began to run away. Come on, yes, sir, I see your hand. Come on, that's good. Yes, ma'am, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Come on, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Come on, yes, sir, in the back there. Come on, it's good. It feels good, doesn't it? It feels good to get that hand up in the air. Somebody else. You said, you know what? I've just walked away from it. Somebody else. Somebody else. Come on, I see all kinds of hands up in here. Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. So let's pray this prayer together. Let's just do it all together. Come on. Say, Jesus, forgive me for withholding my life from you. Today I believe that Jesus died for my sins, that Jesus is your son, and that one day he's going to call me to be with him in heaven forever. So God, come on, say this with me. So God, fill me now with your Holy Spirit. Make me a new person to live a new life in Jesus' name. Come on, and everybody stand together. Amen. Stand with me. Come on, you can clap. Let's worship. All things have passed away. Your love has stayed the same. Your constant 